Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians, Paul's letters, letter to the saints of Philippi. And part of my intent throughout this month has been that we be reminded and that we in fact see that all of Scripture is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we looked a few weeks ago from the text in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, where we see Christ in the Old Testament being foretold, being prefigured there through the Old Testament Scriptures. And we considered last week in the Gospels, Jesus' purpose statements of why He had come. And this week I've drawn from and drawing from one of the epistles, of course, Paul's epistle or Paul's letter to the saints at Philippi. Just again to affirm in our minds that Christ is the center point of all of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament Gospels, New Testament Epistles. Jesus Christ is the center point. And we are in the season where we are giving much consideration to Jesus' first advent or Jesus' first coming. And as we come to the New Testament epistles, or to the New Testament letters, we find in these letters that there's very little to be found regarding Christ's incarnation alone. And by that, we don't mean that there's not much in the, about the incarnation of Christ in the epistles, because there's much there to be considered. But we find very little in Paul's epistles or any of the epistles that are written there about merely the incarnation. There is much importance regarding Jesus' first coming, regarding the incarnation, God becoming man. But that reality, that truth of Christ coming as He came and entering the human race is only important in connection with His work, all of His work, His redemptive work, and therefore we cannot separate Christ's incarnation from His life, nor from His substitutionary death. The incarnation is, of course, an important truth, but the incarnation by itself, Christ coming, living among men, the incarnation by Himself does not bring redemption does not bring salvation. So it is an important part that Christ coming and entering, but there, we must see the bigger picture here. So that we find when in the epistles, where much of the, of course, many of these written by Paul, not all by Paul, we find the texts that do address Christ's incarnation, they give explanation. Explanation of the design of His coming, the purpose of, of his coming and what was accomplished by his first coming. And so our text today is one of those perfect examples where the incarnation of Jesus Christ is described, Christ's entry into the human race. But there is more to the story than the fact that he did come and was born in a manger, did become a man. So Paul writes to the saints there at his 
to the beloved saints there at Philippi, a church that was dear to his own heart, and a church that was doing relatively well compared to some of the other letters that we find in the New Testament. Saints that were doing well in their walk, but at the same time, urged to press on with Paul. Press on in the faith. And so, Paul draws upon the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as he makes his appeal to them. So begin reading me here in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 are going to be our focus. We're going to read beginning here in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus." who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is thrust before us as a season of, of celebration. And as the people of God, we certainly have much that we can and ought to celebrate in these days. The difficulty, though, that is, that is thrust upon us is keeping focused upon the main thing, keeping focused upon Christ Himself because there is so much more in these days that's set before us. So many other distractions that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, first of all, dear saints, I encourage you to celebrate Jesus Christ this season. Celebrate Him. And in light of the great benefits that we receive from Him as the people of God... Consider just a few of those things. What are some of the benefits that are ours that we would lay claim to as the people of God? Well, we would lay claim to the benefit of God's forgiveness. That we are forgiven of our sin, of our offenses committed against Him. And with that, that we are reconciled unto God. Instead of being His enemies, we've been brought to terms of peace with Him. We have access to God. We are received by God the Father as His children through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have communion with God in that access. We have union with Christ. Think about that. 
To be united with Christ. To say, as the Apostle Paul told the saints at Colossae, that your lives are hidden with Christ in God. True of God's people. And God's people alone. The benefits of adoption. Receive into the family of God. Behold what manner of love has been laid upon us that we should be called the children of God. Just to name a few. Many more, aren't there? Many more benefits that are ours in Christ. The benefits of, of justification. The benefits of sanctification. The benefits of we've considered in Sunday school with the children. The benefits of, of glorification. All those things. All those things are ours. In Christ. And if we receive such benefits, such realities, should there not be some expression in our lives that these are indeed ours? And that's where I want our focus to be here today, and I'll try to assist you. I know I normally have the outline given to you very clearly in your bulletin, point one, two, three. I will try to articulate those to you more clearly as we go through. I tried today anyway, but just as if you're taking notes of these things, I want to consider as the people of God how we ought to live as those who are beneficiaries of Christ's work. How we ought to be living in light of what Christ has done. If these benefits are in fact ours, what our lives should look like, how do those who gain so much in Christ live? In regard to our text here, of course, again, this is just, we're going to consider three things. There's a multitude of other things that we added. But from this text, I want us to think about three things that should, be, that should exemplify the life of the people of God who receive so much from Him through Christ. First of all, number one, number one, to marvel in His humiliation. This is what a life that looks like who receives the benefits of Jesus Christ. It should be a life that marvels in Christ's humiliation. Listen, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a reality, it is a truth that deserves much in the way of consideration and meditation, doesn't it? This is a truth that we should never get over. This is the truth that we should be marveling in. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world, God Himself, taking upon Himself human nature. There are few events in history that compare to this incredible truth. And the other truths that do compare have to do with the person the work of Christ. Paul's description of this of this reality of Jesus' humiliation. First of all, he speaks of his divine character here. Paul here just simply being consistent with the, with the message of all of Scripture. He affirms Jesus' divinity here in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Existing, excuse me, he existed in the form of God. Here we see Jesus Christ in His pre-incarnate existence. 
To understand, to be reminded of when Jesus came as this baby in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is is eternal as God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus Christ has always been, always been the Trinitarian truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so Paul affirms that here in our text here, speaking of Jesus Christ existing in the form of God, pre-incarnate existence. What does it mean, though, to be in the form of God? First of all, he's not saying here that he just merely looked like God or had some something to make people think of God. It's much deeper than that. And he clarifies it with a statement in the next phrase, being equal with God, equality with God. This is what he means, what he understands. Jesus Christ is God. He is not a mere man. So when it says he existed in the form of God, it's all that would identify Jesus as God. He had the glory of God. He had the majesty of God. All of these things that would demonstrate that Jesus Christ truly is God. All that was rightfully his is God. He had that. That's what it is to be in the form of God. That's cause to marvel, isn't it, that Jesus is God. And he takes upon himself human nature. Think about that. Think about that. That God, the Creator, enters into the world and the appearance and the form of His creation. Can we fathom that? Can we fathom that? It's His divine character. The second thing we want to consider is His deliberate choice. This is number two under point one, folks. This isn't point number two. We're still marveling His humiliation. His deliberate choice. Paul emphasizes the voluntary nature of Jesus' action. Jesus, verse 7 here, says of the script, the scriptures say of him, he emptied himself. Verse 8, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. It was Jesus Christ voluntarily taking the low place, taking the place of humility voluntarily laying aside His glorious status in heaven. Listen, He did not, He did not empty Himself. He did not lay aside His divinity. He did not do that because He could not do that. Because if He is God, one of the truths of Scripture of God is that He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He cannot change. He cannot be less than God. So that when God the Son comes, He is not laying aside divinity. He is laying aside His glorious status that He has in heaven. What's His status in heaven? He's the focal point. He's God. What's His status when He comes to earth? He's an obscure child born in a major and a small town in the Middle East. He lays lays aside that glorious status. His glory is veiled in human flesh, taking the lowly place, the low status. The glorious Lord comes, as described here, comes as a bondservant. Verse 7, He empties Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. A deliberate choice. And third, we see in this humiliation, His depth of condescension. 
Now understand, first of all, it was quite a step for God to come down to the human race, wasn't it? That was quite a, quite a step of condescension. We've nothing to compare to that. We can't, we can't say, well, it's like this because there's nothing that's like this. What do you compare? What do you compare God coming into the human race with? What is like that? I mean, what is something that we could possibly do that could parallel that? There's nothing. If we could create a world, we have in our home little created worlds. Thomas the train engine and railroad tracks. Little created worlds. Could we think of, could we think of possibly, and these things are not alive, they're inanimate objects, but could we possibly think about entering into that world? We could think about it. We could never do it. There would be no reason to ever do it. But even the depth of condescension from us into that world pales in comparison to the condescension of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, to come into our world. There's no comparison. You can't compare the two. So we've already seen the greatness of His condescension that the One who is the God of heaven comes into the human race. But He goes further than that here in His explanation, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man. It doesn't mean that He just looked like a man. He was a man. But when the world looked upon Him, they regarded Him as a man. And rightfully so. He was. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the depth of his condescension. Jesus Christ committed to obedience to the will of his Father to the degree that it required death itself. Can you imagine this? Can we fathom this? That the one who is the Lord of life, the one who is the giver and the sustainer of all life, the one who says, I am the life. He is life. Submitting to death. But not just death. Not just the unthinkable and the one who... And God being God who is indestructible, God who cannot die, submitting to death, even, the last part of verse 8, even death on a cross. See, He didn't just come into the human race, did He? That was a great step of condescension. But He came and He lived as a man and He dies as the lowest of men by choice he dies the shameful the painful death of a criminal he dies in the appearance in the mind of the world as the lowest of low men. And in the minds of the Jews of his day, he dies as one who is cursed by God. Because cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That's the death. 
That's the condescension that Jesus experienced. And it just wasn't dying. It was a shameful, painful death. It was a death that men looked at him even in his dying hour, in his dying moment. They looked at him and they continued their mocking. Let him save himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. What a great cause. For the people of God, for us as God's people, to marvel, to marvel in the humiliation, to such a humiliation. That God Himself deliberately chooses to take human nature. He chooses to enter into our world and He chooses voluntarily submitting to be treated shamefully by His people, by His own creation. Why? Because it was necessary. It was necessary for Him to endure these things that His coming might be a benefit to us. Placing our need above His rightful place. The need that people be redeemed from their sin. To be delivered from their sin. Dying for the guilt of His people. For the offenses that we have committed against Him. There's marvel. He dies for my offenses that I have committed against Him. That's humiliation. And such humility, such humiliation, it ought to stir our hearts to marvel in His humiliation, to consider the reality of, of God Himself coming to the human race, to consider the reality of what Jesus Christ endured in laying down His life in the manner which He did for the saving of men. So when Paul writes this, I think it's something he intends for the saints of the Philippians, you know. Have you even thought of this lately? Have you marveled in the humiliation of Christ in recent days? Or has the notion, the idea of, of God and coming and living among us, of God being born into a manger, is becoming something we hear so much in these days that it loses something of its, of its freshness and something of its marvel? We need to remember for the benefits that we have gained in Christ, this is what it took. This is what it cost. This is what Christ give, gives. And we ought to be utterly amazed. We ought to be utterly amazed that anyone is saved if it required this to take place. Why? Why in the world would God ever do such a thing? I don't know about you. Let me take that back. Yes, I do know about you. He didn't get any great prize in any of us, did he? Did he? You're what he got. You're a child of God. I'm what he got. And he experienced this level voluntarily, this level of humiliation to get me, to get us, to redeem this kind of a people unto Himself? Is there anything in that that would begin to make us marvel at this? Lord, 
take these truths that we marvel in your humiliation and what did you gain? Second point. Those who receive the benefits of Christ's work, how would you live? Not only do we marvel in His humiliation, secondly, we revel in His exaltation. We revel in His exaltation. The word revel has the idea of taking intense pleasure or satisfaction. And Paul cannot speak of the humiliation here of Jesus Christ without finishing the story, can he? I mean, the fact of the matter is, the, the first part, speaking of the humiliation of, of Christ, addresses his main point here, which we're coming to in just a minute. But Paul just can't stop there. <laughs> he can't stop this message in the middle. There's much more to be considered than just the humiliation of, of Jesus Christ, and that is the story of His exaltation. And so he continues on from verse 8. He found the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he keeps going there, doesn't he? Verse 9. For this reason also. There's more here. For this reason also. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So after Jesus' sacrificial work, after Jesus dying for the sins of His people, He ascends into heaven to the place of highest honor. And three things to consider here in His exaltation. First of all, it is God's work. It is God's work. God highly exalted him, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him. God bestowed on him this name that is above every name. The Christ's sinless obedience was rewarded. It received its just reward from God the Father, restored by God to the place of His previous glory. He's not receiving something he didn't have before. He's just simply going back to the place he rightly, rightfully had as his own. He's highly exalted. Bestowed on him the name which is above every name, verse 9. Jesus vindicated by God himself. What is that name? There's above every other name. It's verse 11. It's Lord. There's a name above every name. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is the one to be exalted and honored and see His place here. That is, secondly, is Jesus' place. The name above every name. The position of Lord sovereign over all of His creation. That's His name. He's the Lord. That's His place. So we see it's God's work. Second, we see, we see Jesus' place. Third, we see creation's response here. What is the response to God's work of Jesus Christ being given that place 
us, Lord, over all things. Creation response in verses 10 and 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the response of creation. That Jesus Christ is rightly acknowledged as God, as Lord, by every creature. There's the bowing of the knee. There's the confession of the mouth to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified through the exaltation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is glorified by the bowing of all creation before Him, by the confession of the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God the Father is glorified in that. So as God's people, we revel in this exaltation, don't we? If we're a child of God, we see the exaltation of Christ. We see this name above there, the name Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords. And we rejoice in that. We revel in that. We find pleasure and great satisfaction in that truth. To see Jesus Christ rightly vindicated. To see that exaltation consummated. In His return, our joy to see Him vindicated in His ascension, exalted to the highest station as Lord God, acknowledged for who He really is by all of creation, by all of mankind. And so why do we say that as the people of God that we revel in this exaltation of Christ? Why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why do we bring that out here? Because not everyone revels in that exaltation, do they? Not all of mankind rejoices in the exaltation of Christ. Not all of mankind recognizes that it is God who has exalted Jesus Christ to that highest place. Not all of mankind recognizes that Jesus has that name above every other name as Lord of all the earth. It is not an occasion for all to revel. His enemies, in fact, will bow and confess. That's what he says, isn't it? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen, listen. I think this is clear, but let's make sure it is. Everyone, every person will one day Bow the knee before Jesus Christ. Every person will do that. Every person will confess with the mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. The issue is, do I confess Him in my life now as one who has turned from my sin, acknowledged His rightful rule in my life, or will I be forced as His enemy forced as his enemy to stand before him, to bow the knee, to confess him as Lord, and be cast into a Christless eternity. There's the options. You're going to bow. Sometime. It's either now, in this life, or it's when you pass into eternity. But you're going to bow. You're going to confess. All of humanity will acknowledge Jesus Christ for who He is. Much better thing to do it now. To come into Him now in repentance. 
than to stand before him as his enemy. To, to be one of those who can see the exaltation of Christ. See it as God's work. To see him given that name that is above every name. And to now revel. To find great joy, intense pleasure, and, and satisfaction in that truth. Do you find pleasure in that today? That Jesus Christ is exalted above all, all names? That he's Lord of Lords? Do you revel in that? So if you're a child of God, to see Him in His rightful place, we can rejoice. There is pleasure. There is satisfaction in His exaltation. And if we are those who revel in such exaltation, if we are those who can find any measure of pleasure and satisfaction in Christ's exaltation, we do so because of God's mercy and grace, don't we? That's it. It's not because we're such wise guys and we've seen it. It is because God has worked graciously in our hearts by His mercy. And were it not for His grace, were it not for the grace of God at work in our hearts, we would all be those who bow before Him and confess Him in eternity when it's too late. See, what is salvation? Part of salvation is, is we see Jesus Christ for who He is in this life. Shared in Sunday school with the kids, you know, we we see through a glass dimly. It's, it's a poor reflection, but we see Jesus in some measure in His greatness and in His glory and His worthiness in this life for a child of God. That's salvation. That our eyes are opened to the glory of Christ and that we are satisfied. There is truly pleasure to be found in knowing that Christ is exalted in the highest of places. So the joy of, of our salvation is that we, we confess Him as Lord now. We bow before Him now because He's shown us it is His rightful place, and it is therefore our duty, our responsibility as His creatures to bow before Him and to confess Him as Lord. So we revel in His exaltation. If you're a child of God, you find great joy today that Christ is exalted. And third, point number three, we follow Him in imitation. A life that has gained so much through Christ's work. We marvel in His humiliation. We revel in His exaltation. And we follow Him in imitation. It's in the biblical message of Jesus' purpose in His coming and of Jesus' life that He lived is ultimately redemptive. That's why He came. He came to redeem 
He came to purchase. He came to save. And that done so by living a sinless life, dying a substitutionary death for the sins of His people. That's why He came. However, we cannot ignore the context of this text here. That Paul gives us this explanation, this description of Jesus in His humiliation and of Jesus in His exaltation in the context. And the context that He gives us here, His purpose in this section is He's called upon the saints at Philippi to consider and to follow Jesus' example. Listen, Jesus' life was so much more than a mere example. But, it also was an example, wasn't it? It was an example of of a life that is devoted to obedience to the will of God. It's a life that's an example of choosing righteousness over sin. So that when we look at the life of Jesus and we understand that there is there's a redemptive work that that his sinless life and his and his vicarious death of those are important for our, for securing our salvation but we must also consider the life and so so Paul says here in, in verse 5 have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus where does he go he goes right to his humiliation and he says to the saints of Philippi let this be your attitude The same attitude that Jesus Christ had. The attitude of humility. The attitude of regarding the needs of others over my own. That my life be demonstrated by actions that are marked by humility of mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Contrary to selfishness or empty conceit, some translations we use, to see others, to regard others as more important because this is what the law of love requires. That if I truly love someone, that I regard them as more important than I am. That their needs, their Their trials are more important than my own. And to do what I can to to serve them and to love them, it is to prefer others over myself. It's to look to the interest of others and not just my own, is how he articulates it here in the last part of verse 4. Look also, look not to your own personal interest, but also in the interest of others. Is it costly? Sounds that love it. I mean, we read this thing. You know the first thing that comes to our mind. If I live like that, who's going, to, who's going to watch out for me? It is costly. But consider what it cost Jesus. What did Jesus give up? And there's his point. He gave up the glorious status of heaven that was rightfully his a place where He was worshipped, a place where He was exalted, a place where He was known, and He was worshipped for who He was, and He came into a world where He was not known, He was not worshipped, He came into an obscure place, and He died a criminal's death. You think that didn't cost something? 
And you tell me, if Christ is going to surrender, if Christ is going to lay aside such glory, to take a place of such shame, what in the world are we going to do that's going to compare? Number one, we're not going to begin from the glory that He begins with. And number two, we're not going to go to the place of shame He goes to. He comes from this place, place of glory, to the place of great shame. Where do we begin? We begin right here, and we end right here. Compare what you sacrifice. Compare the distance you travel. The vainglory, as Paul calls it. The vainglory, the things that we deem to be important, that we may have to give up in order to live a life of sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't compare it going from here to here than from here to here. There's no comparison. Infinite is the distance of Christ's humiliation from the glories of heaven to the shame of His death. Minuscule is the distance we travel, the price that we pay to live for the lives, to live for one another. He left true glory. We have vain glory of this passing world. You can't give up that. You can't make a sacrifice of anything in this passing world that you can't hold to anyway for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ. Have we forgotten the words of Jesus? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. Have we forgotten that? Have we forgotten that there is a cross to be taken? The instrument of death, the instrument of pain, to lay down my life. To count my life, not my own, but as His. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus is deliberately choosing to live for others. Deliberately choosing to live for your brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. And it's to be demonstrated within the context of the church, the context of God's people, His life, His character, by the love, by the kindness, by the selflessness that we demonstrate. And listen, folks, listen. We're not pragmatists here. Our goal is not, well, we're going to live this way so that the world will see. And they'll be converted. Listen, the world saw in Jesus Christ and they were not converted. That's not what it's about. The whether the world gets it or not doesn't matter. Didn't matter with Jesus, did it? Didn't matter whether the world understood what he was doing. He did it because of the will of the Father, it was right. And it was necessary for the sake of his people. So whether the world falls in line or gets it or not, the life of Jesus is our model. The world rejected Him and the world will continue to persecute His followers. Don't expect a great revival and revelation among people of the world. They see you living a selfless, sacrificial life for other people. Don't expect them to look at you and say, oh, I've got to have a part of this. Because apart from the grace of God, they won't. They didn't need Jesus. And you're not Jesus. I'm not either. I'm not going to live anywhere near as Jesus lived. And the world rejected Him. A life marked by 
sacrifice, humility, love, kindness. And they took that life and they hung it on a cross. Don't think they won't do the same to you. You think love and sacrifice is delivering our brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted for the cause of Christ? You think that's delivering them? Are all their persecutors seeing such love and, and falling in love? I want to be a part of this? No. But God in His grace and His mercy, some are. In His grace and His mercy, some respond. So it's not a matter of, let's be pragmatic here and win the world by our love. Jesus just said, it's by your love the world is going to know that you're my disciple. That's what He said, right? By the love you show one for another. And then once they know who you are, they may just kill you. Right? Surprise. They're doing it all around the world, folks. So what does a life look like that recognizes the benefits that are gained from Christ's coming? It's a life that marvels in humiliation. Here's the truth, folks. We just never get beyond it. God became man. Emmanuel. God with us. Revel in His exaltation that we find our pleasure, we find satisfaction in this Christ who is exalted by God to the highest of places. Given the name that is above every name and knowing that He, that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow before Him. There's joy in our hearts for that truth. And then we follow Him. He did live, live, leave an example by His life. And it's an example that we follow. We take to heart. Just as Paul exhorts us here to have the attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus. The celebration of Jesus Christ. Here's our celebration. It's humiliation. It's exaltation. And we live in imitation. Let's pray. Father, we confess that even the truths that we've considered today, they they move us too little. That we've given much in the way of lip service and consideration of God become man, but we've not marveled. And we has spoken much of the Lordship of Christ, the rule and the reign, exalted the highest of places. But Lord, we confess that we have not reveled in this, that we have not found our satisfaction in these truths. We like them, we enjoy them. But so many times it's not been enough. And we also have to confess that we have not followed the life example of Christ. 
Lord, help us. Lord, that we be a people who, who live as though we really believe what we profess. Who live as though we, we understand the great benefits that we have received because of what Christ has done. Forgive us, Father, for the occasion that we've given to the world to fill our minds with much lesser things. And we've not celebrated Jesus, except perhaps as a passing thought. Or perhaps as a token act. But Lord, our hearts have not delighted in Him. Forgive us. And continue to do that work of transforming us. Lord, that we see Him more clearly. And our joy and our satisfaction be in Him, the One who stands today at the right hand of the Father, exalted to the highest of place, vindicated by His resurrection and His ascension. And Lord, to find our joy today in the One who is ultimate joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.